You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Days and convicted. Pool party radio. Showcase. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod Awful. There was once in Venice a Moor, Othello, who for his merits in the affairs of war was held in great esteem. It happened that he fell in love with a young and noble lady called Desdemona, who, drawn by his virtue, became equally enamored of him. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Well, it's more about the Moors. Also here for the fun is Mr. Joseph McBride. Hi, Rob and, and, and Mike. How are you doing? Good to be on the show. Glad to have you back aboard, sir. This week we are discussing the 1952 film Othello, based upon William Shakespeare's The Tragedy of Othello, More of Venice. The film was directed by and stars Orson Welles. Shot over a period of four years, the making of Othello sometimes overshadows the film itself, which is kind of a triumph of will, a conquering of resources and circumstances. The film was the co-winner of the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and a highly unusual adaptation of Shakespeare in its day. Joseph, as our guest, I want to ask you, when was the first time you saw Othello, and what did you think? I saw it a long time ago in Wisconsin. I was a student at the University of Wisconsin when I wrote my first of my three books on Wells, and uh, I got hooked on Wells with Kane, but then they had a series of his other films, and I realized he made many extraordinary films, uh, some of which are you know in the same league as Kane. And so I saw Othello way back in the 60s, you know, I've still never seen the 1952 version, strangely enough, which is not available in this country. I saw the opening of it recently. Uh, somebody showed me that. But the 1955 version was the American release. It took that long to get it released in America. And Wells had, had uh, re-edited the film by that time. Even that version is very hard to see now because it was pulled off the market because Wells is youngest daughter Beatrice owns the film and she did this restoration in 1992 and the word restoration needs to be in quotation marks because she and uh, producer Michael Dawson did a lot of tampering with the soundtrack and some other uh, alterations that were unfortunate. So how about you Rob when did you first see the Wells Othello? I don't believe I saw it before watching it for the show which uh, I'm not sure why I hadn't seen it. I think it was a matter of 
I knew that there were several different versions floating around, and this is a discussion we've often had on this show, where when we know there's several different versions floating around, it's like, well, which one should I really watch? Because I don't want to watch six different versions of the film. But seeing it for the first time this past week, at least of my memory serves, it was quite a revelation for me to see it because there's a lot of things in here that I think echo back to uh, his work earlier than uh, you know when this was released in the mid-50s. Did you see the um, so-called restored version, or which did you watch? Yeah, I think it was the 92 version. Yeah, but unfortunately, I mean, for example, there was a great musical score in the original uh, Francesco Lavagnino did this beautiful score, and Wells had, for example, 40 mandolins playing in one scene. Get you to bed. Dismiss your attendant there. Look, it be done. version I consider the truest version but uh, again he, you know he, he he tampered with it it actually I found out it came out in 1951 in Italy first in a dubbed version that he didn't supervise this was revealed in the book Wells in Italy that came out recently and then he re-edited parts of it for his film filming Othello in the, in the 70s so uh, it's one of those sometimes with literature there are many versions of different things and, and Shakespeare actually when you think about it his plays exist in different versions. The quartos and the folios are often different, and people edit them together and combine them in different ways, and that's sometimes controversial. I totally agree with you, Rob, as far as the I didn't know which version I was watching or what to watch when it came to this. I wasn't aware of all the different versions of Othello when it came to this one. I have never watched his Don Quixote just because I've heard that there are different versions floating around and the one that was put together by was it Joe D'Amato did he uh, put that together? Jesus Franco, the, that's a horrible okay. film that should be avoided it's this travesty of uh, 
they took some bad work print footage and he combined it with a documentary Wells made for Italian television where he's traveling around Spain. It's a real travesty. But I've seen about 40 minutes of really good quality footage from Don Quixote at an archive, and uh, it's it's a totally different experience. But I should mention that the reason the 1955 Wells version is not available Criterion put it on a laser disc, and Beatrice Wells objected. She she owns Othello. It's the only Wells film that she actually owns, because Wells retained ownership of it and then left it to his wife, who then died, and then she left it to Beatrice. So Beatrice blocked the 1955 version. But if you if you go on eBay and you can find the Criterion laser disc, you could watch it. But that's about the only way to watch it right now. Well, just between you, me, and the listeners, it's out on YouTube right now. So, oh, okay. Yeah, YouTube, is, YouTube is amazing what turns up. Huh? But the 92 version, I should say, I've seen the Carlotta version, which is the, the new French uh, DVD and Blu-ray, which uh, I did a 45-minute interview on the film with uh, Robert Fisher did the interview with me, and it's, it's going to be on the DVD, which is coming out November 5th, I believe, in France. And it's with Macbeth. And I have to say, the uh, picture quality is really beautiful on the DVD Blu-ray. I'm not sure if they've done anything to enhance it, but it, it looks really sharp and, and really you know, beautifully photographed. But the, sa- the soundtrack is the same. It still has the problems that I mentioned uh, from the 92 version. One of the conditions I, I made when they asked me to do the interview is I said I want to be able to criticize the what they did to the sound and they said sure okay because robert fisher is a good filmmaker and he wanted to you know do an honest interview whether people agree with me or not you know but uh, that version is not scheduled for release in america yet so if you want to get it you'll have to have an all-region player and order it from france so like you rob i was very taken aback when i first saw this film which was for this show i was completely blown away the Use of the black and white was gorgeous. The film opens basically with the end of the play. It ends with Desdemona and Othello, our main character, dead. And it's a little Citizen Kane-esque because then we have to figure out why are these two people dead? What happened? And who is this guy who's being kind of hoisted up into this cage in the air? Why do we know these characters? Who are they? What are we, you know, how did they get into this situation? And we open up with this funeral, which is just absolutely gorgeous the way that they shoot this like so many of the characters are in silhouette these priests and and different mourners who are taking the bodies away and at times we have these multiple levels of these mourners in procession one with the desdemona's corpse one with othello's corpse it's nice that the movie starts with othello already dead starts basically with his his head and we kind of go up from there and then we don't see the living Othello until like at least about nine minutes into the film and until then it's everybody talking about Othello especially this guy Iago who we meet pretty much at the beginning he's the guy who's being foisted up into that cage and so you pretty much know okay this guy is going to be trouble and we immediately find out that he is it's him and a buddy of his Rodrigo who's played by Robert Coote and who pretty much is voiced completely by Orson Welles if I'm hearing correctly because it didn't sound like yeah, that his was voice Welles. he did that yeah and he did some other voices but he did all of Rodrigo or almost all of them yeah 
yeah, so it was kind of funny to to see Wells's voice coming out of this guy's mouth. Though, to to your point, Joseph, as far as the sound, I mean, there were major problems that I had with the sound right off the bat. It was like, as we see Othello and Desdemona being led away, and there, you know, we have this funeral procession. The music just feels like it's way too like in front of the image for me. It felt like it was a silent film that was being scored after the fact, which kind of it was rescored after the fact. So it was just this weird, like, here's this chunk of music that's in the way, and it didn't integrate with the film very well at all to me. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think... It's a problem when you see the Wells version. I mean, his uh, the music is, is is really beautiful, and it is a silent sequence pretty much. You hear some monks chanting, which was changed actually. Their chants in Latin were changed for the '92 version. Actually, removed they removed the chants. The music is, is thinner than in the original. As I said, it's more lush in the original. But um, it, that happens in some Wells films where the you know the images play with music, and that's it is like a silent film. I think what you might be reacting to is is the modernity of the sound recording. Some you can tell sometimes with sound effects that they sound too modern, and also they've changed. Uh, like in the opening sequence when they're dragging Iago into the cage, you hear the footsteps and then the clanking of the uh, chain and all that and it sounds more uh, heightened than it did in the original they hyped it up a bit which is noticeable if you've seen the original but it is a stunning opening for the film and wells as you mentioned with citizen kane he did this in a number of films he often starts with the main character dead and and then shows how the person got that way and it's a way of showing uh, fate you know it's like okay this this person is doomed from the beginning and then, as you say, he doesn't appear for a while, and then he makes a kind of spectacular entrance, and he gives the famous speech to the Senate, which Wells does very well, where he's explaining how he wooed and won Desdemona. It's one of the most beautiful speeches in Shakespeare. But I have a problem with the sound uh, uh, anyway, and it bothers me a lot. Uh, the, uh, this, the dialogue is often kind of muffled. Did you find that to be true? I definitely found that to be true, yeah. Yeah, kind of hard to hear sometimes. And, and you know, it's it's a real problem, especially with Shakespeare, where you want to hear the words. And then, I mean, part of it is that he does a lot of editing. It's a very highly edited film, and sometimes the line will be broken up, like uh, some famous line will be heard like in, in the distance, and, and it'll be interrupted by a cut. Those kind of things are aesthetic choices, but there, there was something wrong with either the sound recording or the re-recording. A lot of it was dubbed by Wells. You know, a lot of it was shot silent or, or redubbed. And Suzanne Cloutier, who plays Desdemona, was had her whole voice redubbed by Gudrun Ewer, who is an actress who Wells had played Desdemona on the stage right after he did the film, and then he preferred her voice. But there's something funny about the sound, and, and it, it always bothers me. It makes makes this less than one of my favorite Wells films because it's a struggle to hear the dialogue. I must say, in in the French version that's coming out, the dialogue is a little clearer than before, so they, they've done some things. You can do things with modern sound re-recording to make dialogue more audible, which I think is fine. One scene, for example, where they, they have three lines of dialogue that they just made up in 1992, and they had some new actors dub the lines that weren't in the 1955 version at all, and they also, to make some some lines sync properly, 
they cut off parts of lines or condense them or change the speed and things like that, which I think is really unforgivable. Uh, uh, you shouldn't tamper with the film. I'd rather have a film be out of sync a little bit than start messing with the dialogue. And uh, Wells, in my opinion, would always sacrifice synchronization for a line reading. There are a lot of his films where sometimes you see Othello, and this happens in other films too, like The Trial, where somebody's mouth is closed and dialogue is coming out. And that bothers people a lot in America because we're hung up on technical perfection. But in Europe, it's not as big a deal. And in Italy, in that era, every film was dubbed, you know. Wells freely tampered with the soundtracks in the post-production, like he did 11 voices in the trial, for example, and uh, he he was a radio guy from the beginning, and so the soundtrack was like a separate toy to play with uh, aesthetically, where he would do all kinds of stuff with it, so uh, I think you should just leave his soundtracks alone, and, and Chimes of Midnight, which I think is his greatest film, another Shakespeare film, which has barely been seen in the U.S., they're threatening to restore that as well, and um, Michael Dawson, the same producer, has been working on that. I, I, I saw him a few months ago for the first time, and he he said he felt regretful for what they did to Othello. He thought they were wrong, but they're uh, trying to sync up parts of Chimes of Midnight, which I, I wish they wouldn't do. And uh, you know, once you start doing that, too, what else are you going to do to the film? I don't know what they're going to do. Next up, Jar Jar as Iago. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like George Lucas um, does that with all his films, doesn't he? And somebody made a blog recently about how you can't see the original Star Wars anymore uh, because he's tampered with it so much that he won't let people look at it, you know? And, and that's kind of removing part of history when you can't see an original of something. And uh, he says, well, it's my film. I can do what I want. And, and the techniques advance, blah, 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 blah. But, I mean... We want to see it as it was when it first came out and caused this big sensation, you know? Well, the one thing for me in this when I was watching it, I mean, beyond the fact that it's, you know, Orson Welles, is it looks like you were saying, Mike, with um, with the shadows and the black and white and everything. It has a really nice look to it, and that's what I think uh, reminded me of his work as well. And, you know, the thing with the restoration and the various cuts of this and everything, I hate to say it, that has become sort of the standard issue when it comes to Orson Welles. I mean, kind of like beyond Kane and F for Fake, it seems like everything else has had right. multiple versions, has been taken away from him, was cut, you know, by some dude and wherever who didn't know anything. And it it becomes such a um it becomes such an annoyance and it becomes such a you know, sort of a, a dismantling and, and disrespecting of, of someone's work and it, it really is troublesome to someone like me who would just go, look, just leave it, just just give us what he did and just stop messing with it. Yeah, my feeling, you know, listening to our conversation, I was just sort of thinking of somebody listening in that maybe we're focusing so much on this that the film is getting lost, that the film has a lot of powerful qualities, like you mentioned, the great photography and other things we can talk about. But it is, uh, you're not seeing the actual film that Wells made, for better or worse, and uh, that is true, uh, what you say about his career. Almost every other film was tampered with. Uh, there were a couple that were not, but uh, you know, there are many versions, which creates a lot of problems for scholars and uh, actually a lot of work for scholars. And, and also, I mean, I kind of think that Wells left some of his films unfinished so that we'd still be working on them today and talking about them. His career is still going on. But he had a lot of problems because he was a maverick filmmaker. He, You know, Othello was made 
mostly with his own money, and then he had to get investors, and he would go off and, sh- and act in a film and then come back and put that money into the film. But it was a handmade film over four years, and, and nobody was doing that at the time. He was you know, an independent filmmaker before that term really existed. And so the film had a lot of problems with continuity and, and ragged production values, and, and that it looks as good as it does is, is remarkable. But he did amazing things. Somebody will slap somebody in one country, and then the, the reverse shot will be 1,100 miles away six months later, you know. And, and it all works, and he kept it all in his head. He didn't have a continuity person or anything. And uh, it, it's um, it's quite an achievement visually. It tells the story with poetic visuals more than dialogue to some extent. So the complaints about the dialogue sometimes are a little beside the point because it it is more of a visual experience than auditory. He cut a lot of dialogue from the play. There's a long scene in which um, Iago poisons Othello's mind against his wife and convinces him that his wife is unfaithful, and it's always difficult to play that in the theater because you take a guy who loves his wife, and, and in the course of one scene that's several hundred lines, you, you totally turn him against his wife to the point where he wants to kill her, which is quite a remarkable psychological change. And Wells cut that way down, but he filmed it all in one take because he wanted it to be a very intense two-shot where uh, Iago is talking to him and he's reacting. But he couldn't do it as long as uh, it plays on, on the stage. But it's very powerful the way it's uh, shot with that long take. That's like the only long take in the film Wells he's famous for long takes in his Hollywood films and some of the other films but with Othello he didn't have the resources uh, of cranes and tracking shots so it's a very highly montage driven film yeah let's talk a little bit more about the plot I was very surprised watching this how simple the plot is i'm i'm used to there being a lot more stuff going on i mean especially we talked about titus a few weeks ago and that was very intricate a whole bunch of different plots going on all of these things weaving around in here and there's some weaving going on in othello but really it's this whole idea of iago wanting to destroy othello and that's biggest through line that we have with the film and he does all of these different things in order to make that happen there's uh his poisoning of othello with his words there's him using other people to as his pawns kind of to try to take this guy down he's trying to move people around politically and everything a lot of it kind of i won't say it blows up in his face but it doesn't seem to work sometimes othello just kind of comes out smelling like roses like the whole movie begins with iago going with rodrigo to to Desdemona's father and saying, hey, just so you know, your daughter has snuck away with this moor and they're making the beast with the two backs and everything. You should really get on this. You know, you're the laughing stock of town, basically. And then it becomes this whole like, oh, geez, you know, I got to go, go get this Othello guy. What's going on? Though they don't really say his name very much at all, uh, I notice, until he actually is in the movie. Until then, it's more like he and him and the more and all this kind of stuff. It isn't until he's right there that he actually seems to gain his name, which also is kind of that nice, you know, his presence 
finally coming into the film as a living being and everything. But yeah, for me, it was, I won't say it was simplistic, but there was definitely just pretty much one major thing going on. I don't know if you guys uh, agree with that or not. Wells did a film called Filming Othello in 1978, which is one of his essay films where he talks about the film and he gives some thoughts on it. And he has a, a fascinating interview where he's sitting with Michael McLeamore, who plays Iago, and Hilton Edwards, who plays Brabancho, the father of Desdemona. And McLeamore and Edwards were partners in life as well as in the Gate Theater in Dublin, and uh, they, they helped discover Orson Welles. So they're really old friends and great experts on Shakespeare. And they have a long talk about what the play is about, what the motives might be. And Edwards says... You know, it's actually very simple. It's just about jealousy. It's it's it is about what it seems to be about. It doesn't have some hidden subtext like some plays. You have to figure out it's really about this or that. It appears to be about jealousy, and it, he he says he's firmly convinced that's exactly what it's about. But the big debate, uh, and this has gone on for you know hundreds of years, is what motivates Iago. That's that's a real mystery because it's complex, and the play doesn't give you a clear answer, and that's what makes him so interesting. Uh, Coleridge uh, called uh, Iago an example of motiveless malignancy, which is a great phrase. Wells quotes that in the documentary, and uh, what Wells told uh, McLeamore was he said to play him as, as if he were sexually impotent, and that would be the motive for his jealousy of this very virile uh, moor. And uh, the fact that he cast a, a openly gay actor who was very flamboyantly gay, too. I think uh, he doesn't come off necessarily as gay in the film, but uh, the sexual tensions are very strong in the film. And also you have the black man and a white woman, which, you know, today it's more accepted, but back then was a major taboo. And Wells could not have made that film in America. As a matter of fact, the Breen office objected to Othello, and that's one reason it took a while to come out in America. You know, he could barely get away with it because it was based on Shakespeare. But, you know, when you come right down to it, it's a very transgressive film for 1952. And, you know, it's about that to some extent that Othello is very respected in Venice because he's a great military leader and all that. But there is this racial and sexual animosity going on that the play is partly about as well. And so, I mean, it's simple in some ways and complex in some other ways. Iago really is one of, you know, I would say the top three villains in Shakespeare, and we've talked about two so far during this month. One is Aaron the Moor from Titus, yeah. and the second being Richard the Third, and probably I'd put Richard higher up in terms of name recognition for most people, and then probably Iago, and then Aaron in terms of what people remember, because you see Othello more than you see Titus. Andronicus, but um, he really is sort of this rotter character, and it's kind of interesting because I think that his pathology lays somewhere between jealousy and envy. There's, yeah, and they're related to, aren't they? Jealousy and envy are related. You're envious of somebody's virility, and therefore you're jealous. And, and you know, the, what triggers the whole drama is Ovello gets married to Desdemona, and that sets off Iago's campaign of hatred against uh, to, he's going to destroy this marriage uh, also I mean there are other things going on for example I believe strongly that Wells was blacklisted and not everybody agrees with me but he left America in um, early November 1947 which was right after the HUAC hearings where they started um, you know, investigating the Hollywood 10 and uh, the blacklist was 
beginning that month, and Wells fled to Europe and didn't come back to live until the blacklist was starting to erode around 1956. And uh, I think the film reflects that. It's partly about, uh, I mean, literally, you know, a black person who's an outsider who, who's stigmatized and destroyed. And Wells is, a, you know, an outsider living in Europe. And he was also being attacked a lot in Italy. There's a book called Wells in Italy that came out recently. And I didn't realize how hostile the Italian press was to him. They didn't like Citizen Kane. Uh, they thought it was a decadent, baroque Hollywood egomaniacal film Italian neorealism was the fashion and he he's the opposite of that so he was getting pilloried in the press and so there's some personal uh, resonances you could draw with the character on those levels I think too uh, between Wells and Othello he identifies with him well in the documentary filming Othello Wells and Edwards talk about how we all have somebody in our life who's an Iago and uh, I think Wells says we're lucky if we only have one you know, somebody who's out to tear us down out of jealousy or whatever. And often the cause of that is sort of obscure or forgotten. And I think the prototype in Wells's life is John Hausman, who was his partner in the Mercury Theater. And then they had a falling out and Hausman spent the rest of his life belittling Wells and spreading bad, bad stories about him and trying to damage his reputation. And Wells was bedeviled by Hausman. There were people before that in Wells's life who betrayed him. And I think he was constantly, that was one of his greatest anxieties was betrayal. And I, I knew him well enough and I've read a lot about him and everything. So I know that one of the things he did was he was so worried about his friends betraying him that he would push his friends and colleagues very hard to test their loyalty and then inevitably they would all let him down in some way and then he would say see this guy betrayed me you know and it's like he created the situation that he feared the most and so i think it's a very personal film on that level as well i think some of the challenges that wells had when it came to the filming of this and we'll definitely get into this more in the second half of the show but he had so many problems when it came to the budget and all of this stuff and that it turned into this four-year project. He shot it in a very smart way, and the problems that he had didn't necessarily turn into advantages all of the time, but they definitely turned into some opportunities for him to use filmmaking in different ways. You had mentioned, Joseph, the whole idea of you know throwing a punch in one country and landing in another country. The whole idea of the close-ups and how often we see these characters in these close-ups. A lot of times we get these people shot from underneath so they have the clear sky above them or just nondescript buildings above them. That whole idea of this underneath, especially for Iago, kind of showing him in power that way, him looming over the camera, I think that that was very smart because then you don't necessarily know where you're at. We're not seeing you know, a long shot. We're not seeing even a medium shot a lot of times. We just have these close-ups. A lot of times I, I was reminded of um, some of the earlier, going back to silent films, reminded of some silent films. I was rem reminded especially of The Passion of Joan of Arc. Just with those close-ups and that cutting style that he used, um, he was especially using that in the uh, filming Othello. I could see, I mean, some of those cuts were absolutely crazy in what he was doing with that. You know, but it really reminded me of Dreyer and the way that we were so 
focused on Joan of Arc and on those angry faces that were there with the trial and everything. So I I thought that he did a really good job when it came to that. That's not to say, though, that the film is all close-ups. There are some really gorgeous long shots and some gorgeous scenery and everything. And one of the things that I really liked that he did was this whole idea of the netting and the putting people... I mean, I talked about putting Iago in a cage. We have so many people caged, quote-unquote, by the the various things that we have going on in front of them. There are a lot of nets going on. There's a lot of grating going on. I mean, the the one of the, the final scenes that we have with uh, Othello, there's these you know, hash marks across him where he's being shot through this kind of cage and everything. So I love this whole idea of trying to trap people. And it kind of speaks to me that whole line of, you know, with a, a, as little a web as this, I would snare as great a fly as Cassio that Iago says. And that's what he's trying to do. He is trying to be this kind of puppet master spider in the middle of the spider web and trying to, you know, manipulate everything so that he can ensnare the people. And it is interesting that he does play on the jealousy when it comes to, well, of course, when it comes to Othello, but trying to kind of uh, maneuver people who maybe wanted Desdemona more, you know, they think that they wanted her more than uh, Othello, or they're jealous of Othello for getting Desdemona. But yeah, he, Iago, if memory, I mean, as far as I know with the relationships, he's already got a woman, so he really shouldn't be jealous of Desdemona and everything, but he is just so jealous of Othello that it just drives him crazy. And I love this whole idea of him trying to ensnare everyone in this web that he's crafting. He does have a wife played by Faye Compton, who uh, is a famous English stage actress who was the original Mary Rose on stage uh, in the James M. Barry play. And she's very uh, bitter and angry in the film. You can tell their marriage is not good. <laughs> and if he's sexually impotent, that would explain some of it. But she turns against uh, Iago and uh, becomes an ally of Desdemona because she realizes what he's doing. And and he winds up killing his wife. And uh, that's an interesting subplot in, in, in the film. But when you talk about the entrapment and, and the caging and, and the visual metaphors of that, that it goes to the heart of Wells's work, which is kind of a tension between power and, and entrapment, if you look at his films. That Citizen Kane, just to take one, is about this very powerful man who, you know, seems to have a lot of control over people in the world. And as the film goes on, he gets more and more trapped in that mansion, that dark, shadowy mansion. And and there are a lot of um, images that show entrapment, and he's he it's, becomes very claustrophobic. And and Othello is is some something like that, where there are a lot of beautiful exterior scenes to kind of show the buoyancy of Othello as a great military man of the world, and. But as it goes on, it gets darker and more claustrophobic, and he's kind of trapped in this. And he's uh, there's an underground cistern, which is very creepy, and there are shadowy rooms, and, and as you say, uh, shadows over his face. And that's it's very brilliantly shot, and that's a big metaphor for all kinds of things. That he's you know he's not as powerful as he seems, and he throws it all away. There's a great line in, in the play. Um, when he gives his final speech before he kills himself, he, he refers to him as, as one who's, whose hand, like the base Indian, threw a pearl away richer than all his tribe, which is a wonderful line. It's got some of the most beautiful verse in Shakespeare, 
And that's um, one of the contradictions of the film is that Wells throws out a lot of the beautiful verse and relies on the camera. He's coming from for some criticism. Eric Bentley wrote a famous review where he said of Wells' performance, he says, he never acts, he is photographed. And Wells had to admit that's actually true. I think Wells' performance is not particularly good as Othello. He's, it suffers, I think, from the fact that you know, he, he had to direct the film, which is a hard thing to do when you're acting, but with all the technical problems and, and logistical and economic problems, I think his performance was the last thing on his mind. And there was a time once when we were shooting the other side of the wind that I was in another room and I heard Wells say to somebody in a loud voice, uh, he said, Joe would like Christopher Plummer. He said, he doesn't like my Shakespearean performances either. So I ran in the other room and I hastened to tell Wells that I thought his Falstaff was his best performance and I thought his Macbeth is excellent. But I, I said, I have to say, I don't think you're well, your Othello is right because you're not right for that part because Othello is pretty much a victim. Even though he's a man of power, Wells plays men of power and who, who have tragic falls. But Othello is played as a kind of a dupe of Viago, and Wells is not particularly good at that. Some critics have pointed out they think that maybe Wells was too dispassionate playing the part. Uh, he didn't have the the emotion and the you know the, the grand gestures that he should have because maybe he was too concerned playing a black uh, character in blackface. Somebody said that maybe he felt embarrassed to be doing that or he didn't want to appear to be too, quote, black, unquote, which is, it's always kind of an issue when they do Othello, especially with a white actor, you know, how literally how black the character will be and, and, and how many African uh, gestures and, you know, kinds of ethnic uh, mannerisms the, the actor has. And Lawrence Olivier did this, the part, you know, on stage and on film in the 60s. And, he is kind of ludicrous, I have to say. He uh, his makeup is really overdone, and he's really hamming it up. Wells told me he Olivier's Othello reminded him of Sammy Davis Jr., which I thought was a little much. But <laughs> but um, I don't think Wells is really very good as Othello, to be honest. I think uh, McLeamore is superb as Iago, and uh, Cloutier slash Gudrun Orr is very good as Desdemona. You know, in terms of the blackface in here, it doesn't seem as exaggerated as in other things that I've seen where there's blackface. It almost seems like he's more bronze Mediterranean as opposed to being black black. And uh, it didn't it didn't bother me as much as when I've seen other films. You know, you look back through the history of you know old Hollywood, and there's some blackface stuff in there. And we talked about that as well in Song of the South. And also uh, bamboozled in those episodes about sort of blackface and the use of blackface. And, but I, well, we I accept it, you know, in Othello because it's a classical role that there's a long theatrical tradition of white people blacking up to play Othello. So it's not considered offensive, although only recently has a, a black actor played the role on film. Uh, Lawrence Fishburne played it in the 90s. But, you know, it is is not considered offensive. But you're right that Wells' blackness is not very pronounced in the film, although he varies throughout the film. His his skin color changes a lot in the film, if you've noticed. But it is rather subdued by comparison with, say, Lawrence Olivier's Othello. Yeah, he's no Al Jolson. Let's let's no. just put it out there with that. He is no Al Jolson playing yeah. this role. But yeah, I've seen pictures of Lawrence Olivier doing this, and it does look a little silly. And kind of going through what I've seen when it came to Othello, I mean, 
it does seem to be a role where finally black actors can kind of come into their own. I mean, going through some of the, the lists of some of the people that I've seen play Othello or, or that I know have played Othello, like the great Ted Lang played him. And My, my mother saw Paul Robeson play Othello on the stage in the 1940s, which was a major event especially because he had a white actress, Yuta Hagen, play Desdemona that was considered very daring at the time. And she said he was fantastic. And I can, I can imagine he was a great, great actor with a tremendous presence. I also read somewhere that there was an opposite version of Othello made with, I believe it was Patrick Stewart as Othello with an all-black cast. That's interesting as a, as a concept. And Wells famously did the black Macbeth, you know, the voodoo Macbeth or the Negro Macbeth uh, had different names. Uh, in 1936, one of his great triumphs as a stage director, he was only 20 years old, and he did Macbeth in Harlem with an all-black cast. And it was uh, a tremendous success. He said the opening night of it was the greatest night of his life. And so he, he was always very liberal in terms of race, very... Uh, supporting black actors and black Americans. And he got thrown off the radio, basically, in 1946 for defending Isaac Woodard, who was a black World War II veteran who came back to the South. And um, a, a, bus, a bus driver objected to something. They called him boy, and um, uh, Woodard objected to it. And, and uh, a, a sheriff beat Woodard so badly he was blinded. And Wells passionately defended him and attacked the sheriff on the radio and was never allowed again to do radio political commentary because of that. And when you look at Touch of Evil, there's a lot lot of uh, commentary about race in there. And, you know, it's a theme that has preoccupied Wells a lot in his political life as well as in his films occasionally. It's funny, though, for every Yafet Kodo or William Marshall who plays Othello, then you have an Anthony Hopkins playing Othello. Mm-hmm. But it seems like only recently, you're right, as far as in the last few years, it feels like black actors have finally managed to say, listen, there's enough of us around here where we can do this. You know, it's like that whole idea of like, oh, let's get this uh, man or woman to play this transgender character. It's like, yeah, there's there's yeah. enough uh, transgendered actors where we can, you know, give them a, a shot as well. So it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, the you had mentioned the Larry Fishburne performance uh there was the uh film O that was oh, yeah. uh, out there this tim like nelson film where mckay pfeiffer played him i haven't seen the lawrence fishburne one i know you have rob what did you think of that yeah, one? i saw that in the theater when it came out i think it was 95 and as we talked about on richard the third there seemed to be like a whole raft of shakespeare films that came out in the 90s and that was one of them and the thing that's interesting to watch uh, the reason to watch that one is not only lawrence fishburne as othello but to see kenneth branagh as iago and he doesn't direct it i can't remember off the top of my head who directed the film but um as you know if it wasn't for kenneth branagh and all of his stuff that he did in the late 80s and early 90s i think that uh, we wouldn't have had that raft of shakespeare films because he showed that you could do them and make them interesting for people and at least they would play at your local art house theater yeah oliver parker directed uh, that 95 version by the way uh um, yeah, I think you know the, the only caveat I'd make, Mike, it's 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 great that black actors, you know, are getting more and more chances to play Shakespeare. I saw uh, an all-black production of Twelfth Night recently on stage here in, in Berkeley, which was 
terrific. You know, the cast was great. Uh, one thing about the stage is they have this uh, tradition of, uh, hopefully, you know, tradition of colorblind casting that uh, it shouldn't matter what race you are, you could play any part. And, you know, sometimes it's often worked to the disadvantage of black actors. And But I'm not sure that Othello should be owned by wider black actors. You know, if an actor is really good, uh, let him play the part. But uh, I'm not sure Anthony Hopkins would be the ideal choice for the role. But Wells, I just don't think, was particularly good in the part. But Wells once said the reason he cast himself in his films was he said, I'm the cheapest movie star I know. You know who else could he get to uh, be on wait for four years and show up whenever he wanted him to and do it for nothing, you know? So he was kind of stuck with himself in the role. He said later that he thought he should have been older when he played the part. That's another interesting consideration. He was too young for the part, but, you know, something drew him to do this film and uh, spend four years of his life in exile making this film. And it was, I mean, it's a heroic achievement to finish the film. There's a marvelous book by McLeamore about the making of it called Put Money in Thy Purse, which I would recommend. It's very funny and it's a diary of the filming and um, a lot of insights into Wells's way of working as as somebody who's acted for Wells I recognize a lot of the a lot of the situations and also even some of the same lines like uh when when we were doing other side of the wind when Wells wanted a close up he would say now a big head of pola which he said was what Paula Negri, the silent movie actress, would say when she was ready for her close-up. She was she had a Polish accent, so he said, well, now a big head of Paula, and he would do that on Othello. And then when he was trying to make the cast happy, he would sing a song from a play he did in uh, at the Todd School for Boys called Finesse the Queen. He would sing the the title song, which would always make everybody laugh. You know, so he, he had certain shticks as a director that he would, do and uh, but also the the complications of keeping the cast pacified and together it was very hard to keep people coming back and back and back and and sometimes they'd sit in a hotel for three weeks and wells wouldn't be there because he'd be off shooting henry hathaway i interviewed he, he directed wells in the black rose which was a ridiculous film um and wells did it to get money for othello he complained to me that wells would uh, go off with the camera and a crew and shoot scenes for Othello while he was supposed to be acting in the Black Rose, for example. You know, I have to say, I was really impressed with the um, Othello that was, oh, the Mackay Pfeiffer one that I mentioned, that Tim Blake Nelson, who I didn't realize he was a director as well as an actor, he did that, and it was supposed to apparently come out in 99, but because of Columbine, they pushed it back a couple of years, which is weird because I just was listening to a conversation talking about Columbine and how that affected uh, what movies were released and which ones weren't. And I, I always forget just what an effect that had. But uh, they really play up the whole idea of the threat of the black man when it came to you know the play and everything. And, and setting it in high school was very interesting. At first I thought, oh God, this is going to be so cheesy. This is going to be like Romeo plus Juliet. The Baz Luhrmann film, which I really could not, I couldn't stomach that film. I couldn't make it a half an hour through that. But I have to say, oh, was really well. They they start off with all of these white pigeons, and uh, it's a voiceover from Josh Harnett, who's playing the uh, Iago character. Josh Harnett, who like 
was really big for a little while, and then I haven't seen him in years. I think Channing Tatum like took his place at some point. But he is talking about power and all this kind of stuff, and they cut from all these white pigeons to this Dark Hawk, which is the mascot for the basketball team that they're on, and so much of the action takes place you know, on the court and then they have different parties and all this kind of stuff. And it was just really well done. I didn't think that they were going to be able to pull it off, but they pulled it off completely. But there were so many scenes, these love scenes with Mackay Pfeiffer and Julia Stiles, where it's close-ups, you know, of his black hand on her lily white back and everything. And it's like, oh, this is really good. They were really playing up this whole interracial thing and the threat that he has. Because I think he's one of the, I think he might be the only black basketball player on this team. And then, (laughs) while I was doing research, I found another version of Othello, Othello Dangerous Desire. And that one, I mentioned Joe D'Amato before. I always get him mixed up with Jess Franco for some reason, probably because of the, the quality of their work. He directed this hardcore pornography version of Othello. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. <laughs> just- well, it just shows you, I mean, it's been done. I'm, I'm looking here at IMDb while we're talking. and It's been done many, many times, uh, you know, way back to the silent era. One of the funny things about Shakespeare is so popular that they did silent versions of his plays. And, uh, you know, uh, we were talking about how Wells had, had made uh, his Othello into a visual experience. And uh, one thing Wells said once in defending his Shakespeare films against Christmas, Criticisms, like his Macbeth, for example, was viciously attacked in Americans. One of the reasons he, he left for Europe, uh, his career, he couldn't get arrested as a director, too, as well as having political problems. But his Macbeth is very daring and I think a wonderful film. Uh, but it was made on uh, real cheap sets for low budget, and it's really a great achievement. But the critics were attacking that because it didn't have the kind of solemnity and, and the beautiful sets and, and the kind of uh, prestige factor of Laurence Olivier's Hamlet, you know, which won the Best Picture Award in 1947, which is the kind of film the critics like because it seems more respectful of Shakespeare and all that, but it's it's relatively dull. And Wells's Macbeth is, is very flamboyant and very engrossing and very powerful you know, in a visceral sense and, and also in a poetic sense. And, and Othello is even more uh, visual because he's he's not trapped in a soundstage. He's he's out there in Morocco and Italy, filming on locations and 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 to some extent on a soundstage where Alexander Troner, the great production designer, did some sets for him. But it's a freer film. And you know when I teach Wells, I talk about it's all true. His 1942 documentary in Brazil, where he went he left Hollywood to make this documentary with uh, poor people in Brazil and. That's the start of his whole different style, where he's shooting on actual locations, and he's working with some non-actors and some some actors, and he's working without sound sometimes, and using a lot of editing as uh, instead of camera movement, and and that culminates with Othello, and then some of the later films have that style too. But Wells broke free of the studio kind of mode of filmmaking, which he did so beautifully in Kane and Ambersons, but was denied to him later on. And he created this whole different style, and uh, the critics didn't always like that because they don't always appreciate pure cinema. You know, they like things that are more like the stage or like a novel or something. And Wells said, for better or worse, my Shakespearean films should be seen as films, not as 
film plays. Although Macbeth is a kind of an interesting hybrid of theater and film, I think, because it's shot on a soundstage and, and it's it's very claustrophobic, but that's the nature of the play. Uh, Chimes of Midnight is a very, uh, kind of like a John Ford film. It's a sweeping epic film, but a lot of it takes place in the tavern, which is the big set that he had. You know, if you, if you don't have a lot of money, put it all in one set. And uh, But there's some be- tremendous battle scene, and there's a lot of great exteriors and things like that. So all three of his Shakespeare films are different in style, but use the medium very uh, freely and flamboyantly, and that's not always to the liking of some people, but, you know, I think film buffs like it. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Samantha White, director of the Shakespeare in Detroit Company, after these brief messages. The Anime Addicts Anonymous podcast presents Story Time with Cram. And yes, we are now presently in Cram's house. Right. So We are in the uh, the murder room, actually. Yes, yeah. this oh, yeah. is the murder room. Oh, it's, would you like to tell... You have to tell the story now. Uh, I've told it on the podcast before, but I guess it was back in 2006, December of 2006, uh, someone was murdered in this house, the people that were living here. Um, the son was taking care of his mother, and she was very ill, as I understand it, and I guess he wanted to put her out of her misery, so he took a pillow and uh, asphyxiated her. Right here. Right here. Right where we're same doing this. Tommy? Right here. Yeah, same to Tommy. Well, no, they changed the to Tommy. Oh, they changed the to so Tommy. We oh, are, so you mean to tell me that we're actually broadcasting right now in the exact maybe square meter where a person was smothered to death? Yeah. Wow. We're also underneath my bedroom uh, where a man died of an illness. Wow. <laughs> the father. For more Anime Addicts Anonymous podcast, visit www.aaapodcast.com or iTunes. Everyone wants to spice things up in the bedroom. Here's an offer you won't want to miss. Listeners of the Projection Booth Podcast can enjoy 50% off just about any one item at adamandeve.com when you use the promotion code BOOTH. You also get free shipping and three free adult DVDs. Once again, that promotional code is BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H. Visit adamandeve.com today. We interrupt our program with a special bulletin. Okay, here we go. This is it. Greetings and salutations. Listen! Listen! I'm Josh Gravel. And I'm Scott Lafave. Oh, good for you! We want to let you know about the Arkham Film Society. We're a small group of cinephiles programming classic, horror, cult, and exploitation film events in the Providence, Rhode Island area. We have such sights to show you. We try to meet a need for unconventional programming by providing affordable film events through our monthly screening series. Be one of us. Find us on Facebook and join our group by searching for the Arkham Film Society at facebook.com slash Arkham Screening. Check out our blog at arkhamfilmsociety.blogspot.com. And stop by our Etsy and buy stuff at etsy.com slash people slash Arkham Screening. Yes, sir! You, sir! All right already, I'm hip! We now return control of your television set to you. My name is Samantha White, and I am the artistic director and founder of Shakespeare in Detroit. So for those who aren't familiar with Shakespeare in Detroit, it sounds like a pretty simple title for an organization. (laughs) What do you guys do? (laughs) Yeah, it's very specific. (laughs) It is. We, uh, We perform in the places where people live, where they work, and where they play. 
So instead of people coming to us in a traditional theater, we come to them with performances and we interpret the space. So, uh, for example, when we did Antony and Cleopatra, it was in a recycling center. So all of our costumes and set pieces were made from either recycled materials or repurposed materials. Well, it sounds like a, a good way to do things, especially in Detroit when there are plenty of things around to use, I guess. Yeah, we, um, you know, we're trying to build a, a company, and I think the way to do that is um, to make it make sense for the people that we're trying to appeal to. So when you're going to the places that they're going to be anyway, you know, they're going to be at the park, they're going to recycle their things at a recycling center. And when you do that and you put a performance in the places where they go, it makes it easy for them to support. So we're trying to make theater that is as convenient for them as possible. And um, and then they get there and they see what we're doing and they're entertained as well. So it's very cool. Now it says here on your Indiegogo page that the successful performance of Othello, Grand Circus Park, in August of 2013, would you consider that the um, the the beginning or does it go back further than that? I mean, it was the beginning for um, the other people involved and for the public who got to see the show. For me, the beginning was 2012. I'm a uh, tech town entrepreneur, which means that um, I went through one of their programs and graduated from that program. So for me, it's, it's been about two years because I graduated from tech town in May of 2012. And for you, where did the idea come from? Why did you want to bring Shakespeare to the people of Detroit in the locations that you bring them? As you said, uh, yeah. where they gather, where they congregate, as opposed to saying, hey, you know, come over to this theater and see the show. Well, I was living in Vegas thinking that I was going to be a famous comedian one day. And some, someone happened to invite me. One of my friends in Vegas happened to invite me on a bus trip to Utah. And we went to Utah, Cedar City, to be specific. And um, we went to their Shakespeare Festival there. And when I got there, I, I, the first thing I thought was, if they can pull this off in the middle of the desert then surely um, my hometown can have a Shakespeare company because we have parks and all these really interesting historical venues and sites. And so after that, I decided I was going to come home and try to start a Shakespeare company. Um, but I knew that because Shakespeare or having a Shakespeare company in Detroit had never been done before, I was going to have to do it in a way that maybe wasn't um, what a traditional theater company would do. And I needed to introduce the idea and the concept to people in a way that was easy for them to understand. Meaning, if I would have just started the theater company in a theater, I don't think it would have worked. I needed to go to those places where they where they congregate and where they go anyway, so that it was easy for them to have access to seeing our shows. And it, and it was also important that the shows be free in the summer. That doesn't mean that all of our shows will be free, but um, when we kicked off the idea, they needed to be free because they needed to be as accessible as possible. So the venues being accessible, and then also people not having to break the bank when we introduced ourselves to them. I was having a conversation a couple of weeks ago with um, Harry Lennox, who's an actor who's yeah. done a lot of Shakespeare, and we were talking to him about Titus, and one of the things that he said was, you know, folks who are, you know, multi-ethnic, we've got various backgrounds in Detroit, very much a multi-ethnic city, a lot of African-Americans. Yeah. Um, they don't want, you know, Shakespeare in their head. I mean, when people say Shakespeare to them, it's usually a bunch of British guys wearing tights, uh, speaking <laughs> in an arch manner in a language that doesn't really make uh, – it isn't as accessible as it is today. So 
uh, his yeah. idea was to take it and to uh, reintroduce it and say, we can have this. This can be something that can be uh, of a broader appeal than just people who are interested in, oh, it's classical theater. And was just wondering <laughs> for you, how do you find it with Detroit when you bring, you know, this 400-year-old language, basically, and these plays? How has it worked? How have people engaged with it? I think it's extremely important for uh, the cast to be diverse. You can't ask for an audience that is multiracial or that has uh, different experience and backgrounds if you're not representing that in your art. And so I, I'm committed to only doing shows that have uh, a diverse uh, group of actors. And also, I think because um, me, myself, I'm, a, I'm obviously a black artistic director, I, um, I think that that has maybe kind of opened a door as well because people think, you know, if this this woman who graduated from Mumford High School and who graduated from Wayne State University and was born and raised on Seven Mile in Greenfield, if if she can start a Shakespeare company, then let me give her a chance and come see what she's done with it. And then again, by me representing the city, because the city is um, a large melting pot with having actors who are white, black, and um, all, and who have a wide uh, variety of experience, because uh, one of our actors, for example, Iago and Othello, that was his 25th Shakespeare play. And then um, our actress who played uh, Cleopatra a few months ago, she had never done Shakespeare before. That was her first time doing it. So having people who have um, different kind of experiences with the Bard as well, I think, opens it up to the audience because we have some kind of sores in our show. We have people who are experiencing it for the first time. It's important to reflect your audience. I, people, if you can't go to the theater and look at someone or hear someone say something that is something that you can relate to or parallel in your own life, you're not going to be interested. And that's the purpose of art anyway, right? So that we can go and, and feel something and take away something that we've experienced in our own lives. And so I think by us presenting the shows in a unique way and then having a diverse uh, group of actors, and then also with me kind of being at the helm of it, I think that's why we've been embraced so well by the city. So you're not only doing unique locations, you have, you know, a great mixed cast. The question then becomes yeah. the language itself, the stories. Does Shakespeare right. relate to the average experience of someone who's showing up now, even though the stuff was right. written 400 years ago? Yeah, I mean, we all still get old. We all still get hungry. We all still want to be loved. We all need uh, security. We all feel scared. You know, there's the clothes have changed. The technology has changed. The human experience hasn't. We've all been in love. We've all fell out of love. And that's what makes Shakespeare so relevant today. I was, um, last weekend, I was walking around with the director of Romeo and Juliet, and we were on McNichols in Detroit, kind of just going from business to business, inviting people to our show. Um, we did Romeo and Juliet at Mumford, and we were inviting people in the neighborhood to come. And there was a little baby in the, um, in one of the barbershops that we went into, and I uh, was kind of talking to him and playing with him, and I said, knock, knock, who's there? And and he responded, and that's because everybody knows that phrase, but everybody doesn't know that that phrase happens to be from Macbeth. So whether we realize it or not, Shakespeare is in our everyday lives, it's in our culture, it's embedded in us, and so now it's just become my responsibility to kind of show people that whether they know it or not, they're probably speaking Shakespeare, and um and they've had some engagement with him, whether they realized it or not. As for yourself in this season, what you're trying to accomplish, can you give me an idea of some of the plays you plan to put on, maybe uh, some of the places that you want to put them on? Yeah, 
Yeah, sure. I haven't I haven't really announced them, so but it, people kind of know because they're not a secret either. But we're doing the tenth in September. That's September twentieth and twenty first. It was our intention to uh, do the Tempest on Belle Isle. I'm not sure if that's going to happen because we haven't had um, as much support as I would have wanted for our Indiegogo campaign. In addition, the the island is still kind of going through a lot of changes now, becoming a, a metro park. But we're going to do the show anyway. Um, I'm looking right now at doing it at uh, the YMCA Bowl in downtown Detroit. It'll be the first time that we've ever done theater in a theater, so that'll actually be kind of good for us because for the first time we'll have restrooms and a dressing room and things like that. And then in April, um, we're going to be doing a residency um, at a local college. We're going to do a huge show. It's going to be King Lear. There will probably be about 40 to 60 actors in that show. It'll be my biggest show that I've produced to date. Um, So we're really looking forward to that. And then um, in July, we're going to perform Macbeth. Um, at the Yamasaki Reflecting Pools. If if people don't know where those are, those are um, on Wayne State's campus at the McGregor Building. The Yamasaki Committee has asked us to bring a show to that space. If people don't know uh, who Yamasaki is, Minoru Yamasaki designed um, buildings all over the world, including the World Trade Center. So it was an honor for them to commission a piece from Shakespeare in Detroit. So that's a little bit of what we're up to for 2014-15. As for yourself, you talked about how you went out to Utah and you saw how this group was able to do that in the middle of the desert. But do you remember for yourself when you got interested in Shakespeare on a personal level? Yeah, um, I was eight years old. And um, I I remember I was trying to listen to some uh, rap song. It was either an NWA song or Salt and Pepper or something. And um, we weren't allowed to listen to rap in my household. And so my mom caught me listening to, or she, I thought I was sneaking, but she heard me listening to some rap music in my room. And she knocked on the door and told me, okay, you're not supposed to be listening to that. You know that. And she went upstairs um, to her bedroom. And when she came down, she had the complete works of William Shakespeare. And she told me if I was so interested in lyrics, I would have to read this. And so um, I started reading it. I think I read A Midsummer Night's Dream first. And a few other things. Um, I didn't like it at first because I didn't understand it. But by the time I was in high school, I was pretty in love with with Shakespeare. So that's where it started, me not being able to listen to rap. (laughs) So it started out as punishment. (laughs) It started out as a punishment, but it it turned into something beautiful because if my mom didn't give me that book, I, I probably wouldn't have fallen in love with Shakespeare and I certainly wouldn't have started a Shakespeare company, so I'm grateful for that punishment now. Now, at that time, I wasn't, but I appreciate it now. Does um, does she approve of you now doing what you do in terms of Shakespeare in Detroit? Oh, she takes full credit. It's, <laughs> she takes full credit now. Um, I, maybe she saw something before I did, you know, and the p- potential to... I guess maybe she didn't see it as a theater company, but I guess expanding my horizons by giving me that book because I I haven't traveled a lot in my life, but reading and especially reading Shakespeare has taken me to a lot of places. So, um, yeah, she's very happy with what we've done and she's seen all the shows and, and she always tells me she's proud of me. So, um, I'm, I'm happy that she gave me that book. This is a film program that we do here, and we're looking at several Shakespeare films this month. And I was going to ask, is there a particular uh, Shakespeare adaptation for film that uh, you really like? Yeah, well, um, yeah, I was was thinking about that, and I said, what film kind of 
played a role in the context of my journey with Shakespeare. And it's it's a fellow. I saw um, a fellow when I was 14 years old with Lawrence Fishburne. And at that time, I had never read a fellow. I, I owned the complete works, but I had never re- I read that one because I, I just loved reading kind of A Midsummer and Romeo and Juliet over and over again. But after I saw the film, I decided to... Um, to actually read Othello. And that's because I didn't know at the time, I was kind of blown away by the fact that um, Othello was, I, I, I couldn't believe that Shakespeare had written a character that was a black character and a main character. And he wasn't a, um, it wasn't a small role. He was the role. He was playing Othello and the name of the, the play was Othello. And so that kind of changed, I think, a bit of the trajectory of my um, life because I chose Othello as our first show last year at Grand Circus Park. Well, I think also maybe uh, also being Detroiters, and we can talk amongst ourselves on this issue, the uh, the, the, <laughs> the the question of race within Othello, I think, yeah. uh, might also uh, play into the interest. Sure, sure it does. And I, I think no one called on to this except maybe me and my own uh, consciousness, but um, I chose Othello not only because it resonated with me as a kid and I and I knew that I wanted to do it because I wanted Detroiters to see that, yes, the main character happens to be um, a black man. But also, at that time, um, the mayoral race was going on, and there was kind of this discomfort with one of the candidates, and people um, were kind of questioning his legitimacy. And I thought, wow, that really parallels Othello, because when he comes to uh, Venice, people are kind of, you know, they respect him, and he's valiant, and he has this wonderful resume, but at the same time, everyone is aware of the fact that, that there's something different about him. And I, I felt like maybe that kind of was what was happening with one of our mayoral candidates. People, he had kind of a resume that was really robust, but people were kind of still questioning him. And I felt like he and, and Othello kind of shared that piece of the journey in common. Is there anything about Shakespeare in Detroit that you want to add that maybe I forgot to ask about? Yeah, um, I wanted to first of all just say thank you to everybody who has supported us because we've had really, really large crowds. Three to 800 people usually come to our shows, which is amazing for a young theater company. And so I'm really grateful for that. Um, the only other thing that I would say is to please continue to support us because even though we've had a lot of um, audience members and a lot of support and people who've shown up for us, these shows uh, take a lot of effort, and so if people want to volunteer to help us, if they can sew, if they can build, if they want to donate, um, we could use all of that, and they could contact us by just shooting me an email, and I always, I'm I'm always the one answering at shakespeareindetroit at gmail.com. And is there a website or any other ways people can get in touch? Oh, plenty of ways. We're very accessible. So they can go to shakespeareindetroit.com to sign up for updates. That way they'll always know what shows are coming up next. We'll shoot them audition notices, and they can always find out what's happening with Shakespeare in Detroit. They can also follow us on Twitter at Shakes in the D. So that's Shakes, S-H-A-K-E-S, in the D. And then on Facebook at Shakespeare in Detroit. It's very easy to reach us, very easy to find us. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rob. I appreciate it.
thanks to Samantha White for taking the time. Uh, I don't think any relation to you, right, Mr. White? Not that I'm aware of. Well, you know, there's a lot of Whites out there. Well, we all have links over to where you can find out more about her work with Shakespeare in Detroit on our website, projection-booth.com. Now, Joseph, you had said earlier that there is a French Blu-ray of Othello coming uh, down the pipe very soon and uh, just wanted to know what can folks expect to find on that disc? Well, Carlotta Films in France is releasing the Blu-ray and DVD uh, versions of both Othello and Macbeth, uh, Wells' 1948 film. The 1992 restoration, in quote quotation marks, which I have some issues with, is the Othello version, which has been scuffed up a bit visually, but is, is still has the same soundtrack. I did an interview with Robert Fisher, who's a very good documentary filmmaker who, who specializes in films about films and filmmakers, and he does a lot of great DVD uh, extras and interviews, especially in Europe. But he does other ones. He just He's working on Dead Pigeon on Beethoven Street now. The Sam Fuller film is being restored, and Fedora, the Billy Wilder film, he did a documentary on that. And he did a three-hour interview with me. I was in Berlin because this summer I was researching Ernst Lubitsch for a book that I'm working on that deals with Lubitsch. And I was at the Bundes Archive watching films, and Robert lives in Munich, so he was going to interview me in California, but he said, well, if you're going to be in Berlin, I'll hop down there and do it. So we did this three-hour interview there, and then he cut it to 45 minutes, did a very good job, and intersperses some clips from the film and some stills and things and so we covered a lot of ground uh, some of the things we're talking about today but some other topics as well and um, so I think that's that's a good extra I'm not sure what other extras they might or might not have on the on the set but if you um, you know it's good to have an all-region player if you can uh, if you're really a, su- a super film buff there's certain films that only come out on home video in Europe, like, for example, Renoir's Day in the Country. I'm showing that in my film class in a couple of weeks. And the only decent DVD you can get is from England, the British Film Institute. Uh, and it's beautiful. And, you know, so if you want to see that film, you need an all-region player. So uh, it's worth the investment. It doesn't cost very much, actually, if you want to do that. So that is coming out in November. This will be a big time for Wells because his centenary is next year. He was born in 1915. So there are going to be a lot of festivals and conferences and things around the world. I'm going to be participating in some. And there are a couple of important books coming out on him. Young Orson, Pat McGilligan's biography of his his life up to Citizen Kane, up to and including Citizen Kane, is is going to be an important book uh, that you know corrects a lot of myths and uh, inaccuracies about Wells and turns up a lot of fresh information. Should be quite interesting. And Josh Carp is doing a book on the other side of the wind, the still unfinished film that I was in for six years and which we started shooting in 1970, and it's still in the works. They're still trying to finish it. And Josh is doing a book that should be really a great read about the whole history of this troubled production. And he's interviewed everybody. He's found people that I've never even heard of to interview, and he's dug up all kinds of documents. And so at least those two books will be out, if not more. And uh, so it should be quite a year for Wells fans next year. Yeah, we actually talked to McGilligan. He's going to be on both of our In a Lonely Place and The Big Heat 
episodes. And so he will be talking about the book on one of those. I'm not sure yet how that edit is going to go. And then, yeah, next year we're going to be doing um, a Other Side of the Wind episode. So we'll be talking to uh, Josh about his book on that one and hopefully talking to you, too, if if you're up for it. Yeah, I'm all psyched up for that one, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. There's so much to say about that film, and there's still a few people around who, most of the crew were young guys and one or two women, uh, so a lot of them are around, although Gary Graber, the cameraman, unfortunately died, uh, who was you know, the most important person on the production after Wells. Most of the cast is, is gone. I'm one of the few surviving cast members because I was quite young at the time. So we have a lot of tales we can tell, and Josh has all kinds of information and tales, and that should be really an interesting show. So getting back to Othello, what was really nice is that there is the documentary filming Othello that Wells made with Graver, and that helps to kind of shed some light on the production, just to say again, this thing took four years to shoot, which, and it wasn't all in a row. It wasn't like Waterworld or something. There was definitely a lot of breaks going on in there. And this whole idea of them ramping up and not having stuff. And, you know, the, the whole, the famous story about the Turkish bath is one that uh, I, I, think I read about that in This Is Orson Welles the first time, and then ever since then, it's kind of one of those tales that gets told. So the just the brief version of it is that when they finally went to shoot, they didn't have their costumes ready, so uh, or the costumes didn't arrive, so they decided to shoot the murder of Michael Cassio in a Turkish bath, quote-unquote, even though it was actually not a Turkish bath, but they made it look like that. So they they had the actors, but they didn't have the outfits, so what are they going to do? They're either going to let them run around naked, or they're going to put them in towels and pretend that it's a Turkish bath. And it becomes one of the, really, to me, one of the, the kind of standout scenes in the film. And it was amazing to see that, again, that the way that the limitations helped spur the creativity. So it, it, it was really nice. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great thing. I'll just correct. Uh, uh, actually, Rodrigo gets killed there. Uh, Cassio is the intended victim, but Rodrigo is this pathetic character who gets killed. And uh, Actually, the story, Wells always said, you know, I had this brilliant idea of doing it with actors with no clothes on and just towels and all that. But um, it's now said that Alexander Troner had the idea for that scene, who is the art director. So, you know, with Wells, sometimes the myths uh, are more complicated, but it's a brilliant sequence. And, I mean, it's once you see it, you think, you know, it shouldn't be played any other way. It's it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, that's one of the either frustrating or fun things about Wells is that you never know what, what version of the story you're going to get. Yeah, one thing Pat McGilling has mentioned is that um, he's finding out a lot of the stories about Wells' youth aren't true, but uh, actually Wells told the truth more often than people think. Uh it's, it's kind of fashionable to say that Wells made up a lot of lies and told all kinds of stories, but actually some of his, a lot more of his stories apparently are true than, than but you have to check them out. That's what film historians do. But Wells's life was so colorful and, and lurid that, you know, a lot of things that seem bizarre actually happened. I'll mention something about filming Othello, and 
it's frustrating. Filming Othello is not on this DVD set and is not available in America, except I believe you can see it on YouTube. The problem with that film was it was made for uh, German television in the 70s, and it's it's sort of in limbo because Oya Kodar, who is Wells's partner, and, and uh, she inherited his rights to a lot of his work, except for the film Othello, which was inherited by his daughter Beatrice, and Beatrice does not like Oya, to put it mildly, uh, and there's an enmity between them, and so they can't release filming Othello without Beatrice's approval to use the clips, which means that the film is is not released, is not can't be shown, and so it's very hard for people to get a hold of uh, you know a copy, and um, you know I have a some copies from long ago, but it's it's never been officially released on home video, but uh, copies pop up on the internet, so it's it's worth watching. It's a strange film because Wells is sitting at a Steenbeck, and uh, he says there's a movie all of it, it's a Steenbeck, and he's talking about Othello, and he's showing clips from it, which he's re-edited a lot, which is kind of funny, because, I mean, in light of all these controversies about re-editing, he's re-editing his own film again, which he loved to do. Uh, and he's giving his thoughts on one thing or another. But when I first saw it, I was kind of disappointed because I thought I wanted to hear his take on why he did it and what he thought the film was about and all that. But he's quoting from a critic named Jack Jorgens, who wrote a book on Shakespeare and film. And he says at the beginning that, you know, I don't think a director should talk about his intentions or an artist shouldn't talk about his intentions because he said that's not really what matters in a work of art. It's, it's what you think. And he said, I have certain opinions about the film, which I'm not going to tell you. So instead, he's quoting from this other guy off through the film about his own film, which is kind of strange. But now I kind of respect that because um, I, I experienced that with John Ford when I interviewed him when I was 23. I was very disappointed that Ford really wouldn't talk about his work very much, wouldn't give you much of a response. And now I really respect that because Ford was basically saying, you know, the films should speak for themselves and I'm not going to just sit here and explain it for you. And today when a film comes out, the director is on every talk show and gives interviews in the press and, and you get tired of hearing the director explaining how you're supposed to watch the film. And I would prefer just to make up my own mind about how what I think about a film. And so I kind of respect the directors who don't do that. But here as well, spouting off this other guy's thoughts, but it's it's very well put. Uh, Jack Jorgens does an excellent interpretation of it, and you know, after a while, you can't quite tell as well as quoting Jorgens or is he actually saying this stuff himself. The line gets blurred, but Jorgens basically is talking about the film as uh, showing the disintegration of an entire world. It's not just about an individual psyche. Uh, disintegrating it's the visual style shows the whole world and collapse and all the baroque nature of it and the highly fragmented cutting and, and the disorientation of cutting from one country to another and, and like uh, Rob was talking about the extreme low angles sometimes you don't know where you are or you know what you're supposed to be looking at or you know the angles vary so much uh, Jorgen says that's the point of the film is to show a world out of whack or out of control and that's very powerful in the film and Wells more or less endorses that in filming Othello so it's, it's worth watching if you can find it on YouTube the other thing that I found interesting in watching that is it almost seems in style at points a companion piece to F for fake because you have him behind the, the editing machines there and sort of talking to you as he's 
looking at these clips yeah. and all this stuff. So, so in terms of style, it almost seems like a like a sister piece. Yeah, I have a couple funny stories. Wells Wells was going to do a whole series of films about his own films. He thought he'd invented a new kind of film, is what he is the way he put it with Effort Fake, and he called it the essay film. And that's a brilliant film. And he was going to do a whole series of them because you know they were cheap to make, and he could you know he wasn't very mobile at that point. He had trouble walking, et cetera. So he could just sit there and talk, and he was a great talker. Uh, but Effort Fake. But, you know, nobody went to see it, unfortunately. And so filming Othello was the only essay film he completed after that, although he started filming the trial, a film called Filming the Trial, and he shot a 90-minute discussion with an audience at USC, and I was part of that. And um, But he, he never integrated that with any film footage or anything, but the Munich Film Museum has restored that, and, and um, that can be seen, and it's a very good discussion. But um, he was going to do Lady from Shanghai. He said he he wasn't going to do it based on what he thought were his best films, but the ones that had the most interesting stories connected to them. And Othello certainly had interesting stories, and Lady from Shanghai did. But there's a funny thing in filming Othello when we were talking about the incongruity of the editing of close-ups. That long discussion with Wells, McLeamore, and Edwards in a hotel room in Paris, they're all sitting there having a chat, very interesting chat and Wells's close-ups don't match if you look at it the color is you know it's a different film stock I asked Gary Graver the cinematographer why that was the case you can tell that Wells shot his close-ups at a different time and he liked to do that because he could then you know just write what he was going to say and then stick it in the scene and it gave him a certain control over the thing that the people who were being interviewed didn't have, you know, but it's very jarring. And I said to Gary, why did that happen? He said, well, I wanted, he said, I tried to get Orson to shoot the close-ups at the same time as we were doing, uh, McLeamore and Edwards and Orson said, no, we'll do them later. We'll do them later. And he said, well, let's, can we just, you know, after they leave, just sit there and you can do your close-ups. No, 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 we'll do it. So three years went by and Gary said they couldn't get the same film stock. It wasn't being manufactured anymore. So it bothered Gary as a cinematographer that it's obviously shot at different times. But I think in, in a weird way, Wells liked that kind of incongruity. He, he liked us to notice that it, the artifice of it, and Effrafake is full of that, that he's showing us how films are edited literally in that film. He sits there at his uh, Steenbeck and shows you how he's editing footage and creating fabricated versions of things. And uh, the film Othello is stitched together of many, many hundreds of shots, and you're very conscious of the the fabrication and the presence of the filmmaker. And I think in uh, uh, filming Othello, he's demonstrating that. And I don't think he would particularly mind that the shots don't match. He's violating the 180-degree rule in a lot of those, where it's, he should be sitting across from Hilton and McLeamore. Instead, he's sitting almost next to them at the table and doesn't match their eye lines whatsoever so it, it was interesting and then I, I did like that they kind of ended that sequence with him back at the Steenbeck and the film running out on the editing yeah. you know, machine and everything so that was kind of a nice way to end it. McLeamore He's an interesting cat. I would love to read his book. I had right now it's out of print as far as I know and very pricey on Amazon. So I was not able to put my hands on a copy, but I did find a BBC 
version of it where it was cut down to an hour and it was uh, done very much like a radio play. And it's Simon Callow, um, who has written about Wells, if I'm not mistaken, uh, a few times now. Yeah, he's written two uh, two volumes of biography of Wells. He's working on the third and final volume. He's, he's a major biographer of Wells. He does a spot-on McLean Moore impersonation. He is just dead right with it. The guy who does the Wells voice, he's no um, Pinky from Pinky and the Brain, or he's no The Brain from Pinky and the Brain. Welcome, dear friend. Welcome. Uh, no, no. You know, you know, I was beginning to wonder if this day would ever come to pass. Then wonder no more. Hey. What's this? I swear you put on six pounds. God damn it, everyone! I engaged this man to play Iago, and he arrives, no waddles into town, fully half a stone heavier than when I last saw him. I blame your friends at the Villa Bataille. No excuses, Michael. Tonight and every night, I prescribe a plate of eggs, fish, and raw tomatoes until you're fit for your tunic. Well, now, Austin, when do we start filming? Very soon. Mugador has enough towers, bastions, bells, and dungeons to pass for Cyprus. But it was very well put together, and it was from McLean Moore's point of view. So this whole idea of hurrying up and waiting and just the frustration of traveling around Europe and Nobody knows where Orson is a lot of the times, and Rita Hayworth will make little appearances here and there, and just Wells trying to – a lot of it was the struggle of Wells trying to get the right actress to be Desdemona, and that's one thing you touched on briefly is the whole idea of the recasting of these people while the film was being done was another challenge that they had to face. McLeamore also did an autobiography called All for Hecuba, and – one of the, the the most interesting things he wrote about Wells, he describes Wells' audition at the Gate Theater when Wells was 16 and he came there and he pretended he was a star on the Broadway stage and claimed he claimed he fooled Edwards and Mick Leamore into hiring him. And they later said they didn't believe him for a minute because he seemed very uh, amateurish in a way, but he had such tremendous force and power they hired him. And anyway, I, I saw a, a British television interview with Wells where they read that description by McLeamore of that audition, and uh, they said, what do you think of that? And he said, well, it's it's, it's wonderful. Wells said it's wonderful, and it's fascinating, uh, especially since uh, the, the man who wrote it was in London at the time. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so you can't always believe McLeamore. One thing about him that's very nice is Curtis Harrington, who is a fine uh, American director who made avant-garde films, and then he was relegated to making cheap horror films, but made very stylish ones, um, was a Wells fan, and he was on the other side of the wind, and he hired McLeamore, brought him to Hollywood. It's the only time I think McLeamore was ever hired for a Hollywood film, What's the Matter with Helen? He has a very juicy part in that, if people want to see that. It's a film with uh, Shelley Winters, and it's fascinating to see Michael McLeamore in a big Hollywood film. He was a really underused actor when you consider how good he is. But he was mainly a stage actor, and Edwards was a famous stage director, and they were a team, and that was their great passion. And one of the problems that they had making the film of Othello is that they had to keep going back. They had you know, a season to do in, in Dublin, and they had to postpone some of their plays and, and things like this. It caused them immense problems. You, when you're running a theater company, you can't just 
drop everything and go off and make a film as Wells expected them to do. And it, it, you know, I mean, their loyalties were divided to Wells, but they, they actually would postpone sometimes their entire season so they could go off to Morocco and work on Othello. So people in Detroit will have a chance to see the restored Othello, restored in quotation marks, Othello, the 2014 version and whatever that brings to us. Uh, it'll be playing at the Detroit Film Theater on November 15th, 2014. I don't have the time, unfortunately, for some reason. The DIA's website doesn't have the time listed. I'm thinking it'll probably be a 2 or 3 o'clock show, but we will be posting more about that over at our Facebook group when uh, the details come apparent so let's go ahead and take a break and play preview for next week's show Yeah. I need three boxes of a dozen Trojans, one regular, one ripped, and one lubricated. Mm-hmm. A sanitary sponge, one KY jelly, one Caramex contraceptive cream, and an herbal douche. Oh, and can you fill this prescription for low overall 21? You don't take any chances, do you? Working Girls, the highly acclaimed new feature film by Lizzie Borden from Miramax Films. That's right. This marks the final week of our Shakespeare's September celebration, and we'll be back to regular programming, well, at least as regular as we can be for us next week, as we talk about Lizzie Borden's film about the life of prostitutes in a New York brothel, Working Girls. And we'll be touching off on another theme month soon, so get ready for November Noir just a few weeks from now. So want to thank our special guest, Samantha White, for coming on and talking about Shakespeare in Detroit, and also Joseph McBride for coming on the show. Now, Joseph, you were on our Magnificent Ambersons and also Executive Action episodes and was just wondering, what is the latest with you, sir? Well, I'm working uh, teaching at San Francisco State, as, as always, and um, I'm writing a book that deals with Ernst Lubitsch, the great German-American director who's always been a favorite of mine. And I've been researching this for several years. Uh, one of the challenges of doing his work is a lot of it is not available in the U.S., and so I had to go to... Germany and Switzerland to see a lot of the films. So I've now seen everything that exists of Lubitsch, and it's a great treat and thrill to be able to do that. That's one of the reasons I wrote the book, or am writing the book. So I'm working on the writing of it now and researching his life in Germany and German film culture, and then his coming to America. It's a very a great career, which I think is underappreciated today. A lot of people today, you mentioned his name, they don't know who that is, and that's that's probably why I'm writing this book, I think, because when I started writing on John Ford back in the 60s, I'd have that reaction. I'd say, John Ford is my favorite director, and, and I'd get these blank stares, which was really disheartening. And today, you don't get that reaction. He's he's uh, People know who he is now that enough has been written about him, and his films are shown a lot. But Lubitsch, you get that blank stare, so I'm hoping to reverse that. So that's one of the things I'm working on. And I did the audio commentary on My Darling Clementine, the John Ford film, for... Uh, 
Criterion is coming out uh, next month, October, with uh, a beautiful uh, Blu-ray edition of Clementine. looks really spectacular, and I did the commentary on that. And I'm in, I think, five documentaries on Wells that are coming out, including the Robert Fisher one I mentioned. Also, Magician, the Chuck Workman film, is just coming out and a couple of French documentaries and some other ones and you know, so a lot of a lot of different things. Very cool. It sounds like you're definitely keeping busy. Yeah. It's a busy life, but it's fun when you get these opportunities as a film scholar. That's what it's part of the treat is is, you know, uh you know, I spent all these years thinking, why can't I see these Lubitsch films and then okay, well I'm gonna have to cook up a project so I can go to Germany and see them. But that means that you probably don't get a whole lot of time to go out to the theater, you know, and see, like, Blended or Jack and Jill or any of those. Well, I do, yeah. When you're a film scholar and, like, if you're, say, doing My Darling Clementine, I had to bone up again on Wyatt Earp and all that. And I read several books on Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and watched uh, the film uh, several times. And so you're in, you're living in the past to some extent, which is fine with me. I love the past uh, as a character in Max Ophel's Laurent says, uh, it's, it's more, uh, restful than the present and, and more certain than the future, he says. But um, I, I do try to keep up with the important films that are coming out, and I'm, I'm a member of the American Cinema Editors and the Writers Guild, so I get the DVDs at the end of the year, and I can catch up on some things that I've missed uh, when the award season rolls by. Well, something tells me that Blended won't be amongst those films, but you, <laughs> right. you never know. Hey, well, thanks again, Joseph, for coming on. We'll have links for folks to go over and check out Joseph's many books, as well as other fun stuff at our website, projection-booth.com. We'll also have a link over there to go to our iTunes page where people can leave reviews. Even if you don't listen to the Projection Booth with iTunes, those reviews mean a lot. So go ahead, give us some stars. It'll just make you feel better. Don't you feel like trying something new?
Something breaking us into. 